welcome to episode 37 of the podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is David Grigg and I'm joined as always by the irrepressible Perry Middlemiss. What have you been up to, Perry? Um, same old stuff. Same old stuff, David. Yeah, yeah. We're still in lockdown. We've got another three weeks of um, uh, slightly milder lockdown, but still in lockdown, uh, as announced yesterday. But same old stuff. The numbers are looking very good. The numbers though. are looking good, which is uh, which is great. I'm good to see that the numbers are coming down into single digits now, which is fantastic. Uh, but um, still got a bit of a ways to go. But we're yeah. hopefully hopeful that by the time we get to um, well, November, December. Yeah. So for Christmas, we might be able to uh, get out and about and catch up and have a nice quiet beer and a, and a, and a pizza or something to eat and um, catch up with a few friends. That would be excellent. It certainly would be excellent, indeed. So what else have you been doing other than um, just hanging around the house, David? <laughs> I've been keeping myself busy. Good. Now, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, Perry, whether you knew that 2020 is the centenary of the word robot entering the English language. Oh, this is the um, Czech play. That's right. R-U-R by the author whose name, if I say it, I'm going to get it completely wrong. Uh, no, I hadn't I hadn't realised it was the 100th uh, anniversary, so so that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And the, the author, the, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to get the name right either, but it's, uh, it's Carol Capek, but the C, the C has got a little, little duber over the top of it, so it probably is pronounced... Chapek or something like that. I should have looked it up before before the episode. Never mind. Um, yeah. Now this, I've I've been doing this for um, standard eBooks. I've mentioned standard eBooks a few times on the podcast, and uh, we put together really nice looking eBooks uh, based on public domain materials. And in fact, RUR by Carol Capek is uh, has entered the the public domain in America, which is where standard eBooks is based, and so we can reproduce it on our site. So it's it's quite interesting. It's, it's actually not not a very good play in, in terms of a drama, but it has some interesting science fictional ideas in it. And the he, he apparently wrote quite a few um, plays and novels which have got science fictional or dystopian themes. But uh, R.U.R. is probably the, most, the best known of all those uh, because of the fact that it brought the word robot into the language. And robot is derived from the Czech word meaning worker. And uh, that's indeed what these, these things are. They're artificial humans that the R.U.R. Corporation is, uh, is creating. R.U.R., by the way, stands for Rossum's Universal Robots because the company was set up by a gentleman called Mr. Rossum. It's all established on this island, and they're uh, manufacturing these artificial beings, which are not kind of like the mechanical, metallic robots that we think of these days when we think of the word robot, but they're kind of more like what we'd call androids, I think. Uh, but anyway, but it's interesting because it, it brings up sort of the issues of um, the post-scarcity world where these robots can do all the hard work and they can, they can work for, for not and no pay and... Uh, they uh, they can crank out huge amounts of food and huge amounts of, of clothing and so on. So no one will have to work again in the future. So it's it's it sets up this kind of utopian scenario. But uh, in fact, things things go badly wrong. You know, countries around the world start to use their robots as soldiers, and there's wars, and it all it all sort of turns into 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 typical human mess. But it's, it's worth reading, so I, I just thought I'd, I'd bring it up, given that it was the centenary. And um, if anyone's interested in actually reading the play, it's um, 
It's on standardebooks.org. I assume you'll um, you'll put a link into the uh, show notes. I will put a link in the show notes. Indeed, I will. Okay, good idea. Yeah, yeah well, it that's was good. A, yeah, written in 1920, but uh, translated into English in 1923. Okay. Oh, well, there you are, you see. I was thinking of 1923. Oh, you were. You had that in your mind. <laughs> oh, no. No, actually, I didn't know when it was, to be perfectly <laughs> frank. But anyway, that's a that's a very interesting um, uh, uh, centenary. We had a the bicentenary of Frankenstein a couple of years back, mm. uh, 2018. So that was that's also a uh, monumental work in the field. Uh, Brian W. Alders considers it to be the first science fiction novel, and uh, I think he has a point to make there mm. in many okay. ways. The other thing that happened during the week or in the, within the last fortnight, David, was the um, Arthur C. Clarke Award ah. was uh, announced. The, the award winner was announced. Now, the Arthur C. Clarke Award is uh, probably, I put it as about number three or four in the hierarchy of um, science fiction awards for novels for the year. It is given to... Uh, well, it's a jury award given to what is considered to be the best novel published in Britain in the previous year. So this is for 2019. And this year it was won by a book called The Old Drift by a woman called Namwali Sepeli. Now, she is a um, uh, an African writer, uh, first novel, and it's been called The Great African novel of the 21st century. I haven't heard of it before, I must admit, uh, but I put it down to the fact that there's so many books being published, you can't keep up with all of them. Uh, but so she's come as a complete shot out of the blue. I don't know whether this was included on the Locus uh, recommended reading list. I'll have to go and check that. Uh, but anyway, she, um, she beat out uh, at least three Hugo Award nominees, Charlie Jane Anders is The City in the Middle of the Night, Cameron Hurley's The Light Brigade, and the winner of the Hugo Award, Arkady Martin, for A Memory Called Empire. The other two that were nominated, because they, some reason or other, they seem to have six nominees. The other two nominees were David Wellington for The Last Astronaut and Adrian Tchaikovsky for Cage of Souls. Tchaikovsky's won the award previously, but I don't believe any of the others have. Probably going to get that wrong. But anyway, when you look back quickly, no, I don't think any of the others had. So this is a, a brand new one. I will try and read this before the end of the year. We've got a possible slot for other reading later in the year, and I'll throw yep. in what I hope will be a discussion of the non-Hugo winners. That is, the winners of the awards that aren't Hugo Awards. So yeah. the Nebula, this one. I'll see if I can get my way through this. So, yeah, so it looks like a, an interesting book. goes to show that there are a lot of other voices out there which are finally being published, and it'll be interesting to see what this one's like. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to, to, to read that. It looks, looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, just just different and a different perspective. And um, from that from that point of view, it's worthwhile having a look at. Um, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, that's the way it goes. You sure. can't like everything. No, no, indeed. So, to today's episode, David. Today's episode, we're going to bring out the Hugo time machine again, dust it off, and uh, tune it up a little bit. And we're going to send it back to the year nineteen sixty four. 
The Hugo Time Machine. Okay, 1964, the Hugos. Perry, you're the one who usually knows where these things were uh, were given and what the commission was. Do you want to start with that? Yep, well, basically, um, they've, pretty, they've started to settle down the Hugo Awards at this point. They're still only dealing with novels and shorter fiction and a number of other little um, categories, which we'll get to later. But the ones we're going to be dealing with today are for the awards for best novel and best shorter fiction. And these are for works that were published in the calendar year 1963. Now, the 1964 Hugos were presented at the 22nd World Science Fiction Convention, Pacificon 2, held in Oakland in California, between the 4th and the 7th of September 1964. The guests of honour were Lee Brackett and Edmund Hamilton, Mm-hmm. Lee Brackett, therefore, becoming the first woman guest of honour at a mm-hmm. welcome. And uh, the fan guest of honour was Forry Ackerman, Mr. Science Fiction, as he was referred to for a long period of time. The Toastmaster was Anthony Boucher, much better known for mystery stories, but he did write a number of um, science fiction stories and he actually edited fantasy and science fiction, I believe. No. For some time. Uh, the attendance was about uh, 520 people. And interesting to note, they were only lasting four days at that time, David. Mm-hmm. Um, not uh, the five days, which is the common standard in our present times. Yeah. So anyway, novels and short fiction. Right. What I think we'll do is we'll just start uh, with our list of... Um, we'll work our way through the uh, the nominees. Yep, sure. And then we'll get to the winner at the end. We won't announce that until we get to the end. So I'm first off, I believe, and my first one that I'm looking at is Glory Road by Robert A. Heinlein, which was published in Fantasy and Science Fiction July, August, September 1963, and also by Putnam's the publisher. It's about here that Heinlein really starts to goes off the rails, David. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, 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 this comes across as a teenage wish fulfillment fantasy. It's sort of nothing else, really. And it's not really a very good one at that. No. Um, there's far too much talking in this and far too much lecturing by his um, by his main character, which is what he got into. Oh, did he what? And there's also far too much sexist commentary disguised under a hail fellow well met sort of approach that um, Heinlein used to sort of throw out, thinking that this was, you know, oh, nice and funny and he could do this. Anyway, this is a science fantasy novel. Yes. So it's, it mixes elements of both genres. There's a bit of science fiction in it and there's a bit of, bit of fantasy. And it follows the adventures of a gentleman by the name of Evelyn Cyril Gordon, um, who's... Recruited by a woman he calls Star, who's a stunningly beautiful woman, of course, because this is a Heinlein novel, and he's recruited to accompany her and her companion Ruffo on a quest to retrieve the Egg of the Phoenix from some different distant planet. Now, I could go into a lot of detail about what happens in this particular novel, but I will spare you that ordeal, David. <laughs> thank I, you, I, thank I, you, Perry. I read it. Now, along the way, some, some interesting little bits and pieces along the way, but along the way, they talk and talk and talk and occasionally fight a few dragons and other exotic creatures and then talk some more. Mm-hmm. 
This is a dire book, David. It's just <laughs> not really very good at all. I am. Um, this is um, nah, not not to my style. Didn't like it much. I gave it two point four out of five. I think I got. I think he got two point four because I think he did the spelling okay. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, no, it's interesting actually. I I did read this many many a long year ago, but it's interesting. I can I can remember the the stories of most of the Heinlein books I've read. And I know that I read this one, but I could not tell you a thing about it. I looked it up on Wikipedia and it sounded vaguely, very vaguely familiar, but I must have suppressed it after I read it, I think. It didn't, uh, it really didn't, uh, really didn't take with me. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Hardly, hardly surprising, hardly surprising. Look, if you, if you're after a, um, if you're after a quick light read where you've really got to put all your a lot of your sensibilities off to one side and you're trying to be a Heinlein completist, then read this. If you're trying to read the nominees for this particular year, then read it. Other than that, don't bother. Yep. Indeed. Okay, well, the, the next one, I, I'll take the next one, which is Witch World by Andre Norton. Now, this was interesting. Um, this was another novel nomination for a female author. We we mentioned uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley. I think last time we did the uh, the Hugo Time Machine. So Andre Norton's full name is uh, Andre Alice Norton, but she also wrote under the pen names of Andrew North and Ellen Weston. Um, she wrote a heap heap of books. I've and but this is the the first one of hers I've read. Andre Norton did uh, very well. She uh, because she wrote so many books and they're pretty well regarded. She was inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame, and she was inducted as a Grand Master of the Science Fiction Writers of America. So she achieved a, certainly a very high level of success. Anyway, as I say, this is the first one of hers I've read, and I did, hadn't expected to like it at all, because I'm not at all a fan of what you might call, I don't know, pure fantasy, sword and sorcery, that kind of, that kind of fiction. But I was pleasantly surprised. And in fact, it's really, it really is, this is also fits into, the, into that category of science fantasy um, because it's quite a clever mix of science fiction and uh, maybe magic, maybe psi powers, whatever you like. But uh, she does a pretty good job of combining the two sorts of, sorts of genres. Anyway, we start with the protagonist who is called Simon Trigarth. And he's, when we encounter him, he's, he's in hiding from some, some kind of trouble. Seems to be to do with an organised crime group that he's fallen afoul of. And we find out that he was, uh, he fought during the Second World War. But after the, the war, he got involved somehow in the black market uh, in Berlin. And was caught and given a dishonourable discharge from the army. And then he fell into the hands of this organised crime group. And now he's on the, on the run from them. They, they've obviously, he's obviously done something wrong that they're going to get him for. Anyway, this all kind of whizzes by very quickly. And uh, he's helped to escape by this mysterious man called Dr. Petronius, who essentially uses some kind of magic and a stone of power to open a portal out of this world into another one. And uh, Tregarth doesn't hesitate, just pays Petronius a bunch of money and goes through. This is all in the first chapter. So that, that's all, all pretty good. And so he's in this new world, and he, he finds himself on a moor in the midst of a deep mist, and uh, it doesn't take long before he sees this young woman running desperately away on foot from a, a mounted party of men and their hunting dogs who are chasing her. Of course, like any good hero, Trigarth intervenes and helps her escape, but although she's speaking a language he doesn't understand. And she is, of course, beautiful and scantily clad, 
as these things are in these kinds of works. And soon afterwards, uh, she's able to bring help and her own people pick them up. And he finds himself among the Estkap people, which is a, met a matriarchal society controlled by women who have magical or psychical powers, whatever, but they call themselves witches anyway. So let's, let's go with magic. So Tregarth very quickly learns the language. It's always amazing in these books how quickly the heroes pick up the language of the place they're in. So he quickly picks up the language and becomes a member of their military. And Escarp, we find out, is threatened by many enemies, but none more dangerous than a new group from a place called Kolda, who have taken over a nearby land called Gorm. And in an early skirmish with the Kolda forces, the, uh, the Escarp troops, uh, along with the Tregarth, discover that they're fighting essentially zombies, uh, but they're, where they're soldiers from, from Gorm who have been turned into these mindless fighting machines. And uh, they, you know, they try and kill them and they, they don't stop while well, they can still move. And eventually we find out that the Kolder are in fact uh, alien beings who are trying to take over the planet, which Tregarth has travelled to. And they've got technology greatly in advance of anything the locals have. The locals are all sort of medieval sort of level technology. But the, these, these aliens from Calder have got aircraft and submarines and, and um, energy weapons and goodness knows what, and a, an ability to, to convert people's minds to, uh, to be into these kinds of zombies. So there's lots of good action. There's interesting characters, including a young woman who is going to be married off to, to someone she doesn't like, an unscrupulous duke. And uh, she escapes and uh, adopts a male male clothing and male persona and uh, in doing so she helps rescue one of the Escarp witches from imprisonment and threatened rape. I, look I, I, I enjoyed this it was well written and the story was compelling and as I said it was good characters ending is a bit mushy and a bit overly romantic but you can forgive it that so I don't know that I'm very keen to go on and read the entire series of sequels to, to this in this particular world but it was pretty good readers and one-off I thought it was it was not bad. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd agree with that. I'm I'm quite interested in now that we're talking to those about those two books one after the other. The similarities are quite striking, really, because uh, you have the main character in Glory Road has been fighting in a war somewhere in Southeast Asia. You think it's probably Vietnam. Here, in Andre Norton's, he's been fighting in the the Second World War and then afterwards. Mm. And they both get into trouble or they both decide that they are going to move through a portal into a sort of fantastical world that is not the same as this. And they meet a woman on the other side who then guides them along in terms of their adventures afterwards. So there's a lot of similarities between the two, but which world is a hell of a lot better than Glory Road? Mm -hmm. uh, I gave this a 3.4 out of 5. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to put it up to a level of a 4 out of 5. It's a good, it's a good solid 3. It's a good solid read. Like you, I'm not really overly keen on reading the rest of of the Witch World series, of which I believe there are multitudinous volumes, many, many volumes, and it branches off all over the place as well. So, but it is, uh, it's competent stuff, and yeah, worth reading of this type, the better of the two, without a doubt. For sure. So my next uh, book that I'm going to be looking at, David, is Dune World. Now, this is... Um, quite apt in our uh, current time because, uh, well, I first should uh, introduce this as 
Dune World by Frank Herbert, uh, which was published in an analogue in December 1963 and then January and February 1964. Now, I've always gone with the idea that a, seri- a book's not finished until the serial's finished, and therefore it really should have fitted into 1964's books, mm. but whatever reason, things weren't sort of... Maybe they weren't sort of codified as much as they are now, and it got picked up as having started in 1963, and therefore, anyway, I suppose the January 1964 uh, issue would have come out in December '63 uh, anyway. So anyway, this is a bit of hand wavy, hand wavy stuff. Now, June World by Frank Herbert is actually the first part, the first book of three books, I believe, of the final version that is June. Uh, June uh, won the Hugo Award in 1966 and it was finally published in 1965 after the sequel to June World, uh, which is Prophet of June, which came out in Analog in 65. So this is the first part of that big final novel. And the interesting thing about this particular part is that it looks like it is the basis for the new version of Dune, at least the first part of it, that is going to be coming up where the trailer was released within the last two or three weeks. Uh, This is a film by um, Denis Villeneuve, who did uh, Blade Runner and Arrival. So he's got his um, science fiction chops down, down pat, happy enough about him doing it. The trailer looks pretty good. Be interesting to see what he does with it. Anyway, so for those one or two people in the universe who have never read Dune. This is the first part, as I said, of uh, the final final book. It starts off with... Well, the overall theme is that basically um, House Atreides uh, is part of a hierarchical uh, galactic empire. So you have... Uh, it's in the fast future. The humans have spread across the whole of the galaxy. The galaxy is being ruled by a an emperor at the top, and below him, at the sort of duke and baron level, are the houses. The two that we're interested in here in this particular book are House Atreides and House Harkonnen. House Atreides has been ordered by the emperor to take over uh, the planet of Arrakis from House Arconan uh, and to therefore control the production of Melange. I think that's how you spell it. M-E-L-A-N-G-E. That's how you pronounce it, rather. Which is a spice which is only found on Arrakis and which is critical to the functioning of the empire. It allows um, the navigators on large spaceships, which are uh, which are run by the Space Guild, which is sort of like a third wheel of this particular empire. So you've got the Emperor, the Houses, and then the Space Guild, and the Space Guild looks after all interstellar travel. And the only way that the navigators are able to work their way through interstellar travel is to be completely addicted to this particular spice. So... House Atreides move in, take over planet of Arrakis from the Harkonnens, but the Harkonnens really don't want to give this up. And right from the start, you fully well realise that this is a trap. The book, this is a very interesting structure to this particular book. The young son of uh, House Atreides, Paul, is obviously the 
Messiah that has been prophesied by a group of people uh, in the galaxy. This is a group of, well, it's like a, it's like a female church. And I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. <clears throat> I pronounce it as uh, Betty Gezeret. And these are the um, uh, women that act as sort of a fourth wheel in this particular galaxy. They look after the religious side of things, but they have a long, long-term plan where they know of the um, prophecy of the, the prophet or the Messiah, uh, Messiah coming about. And they uh, have been working for centuries, if not thousands of years, on a breeding program which would lead to this particular Messiah appearing. But then the very first chapter, you're told about all this, and the questions are asked, is Paul this particular person that has been prophesied? So you get that side of the whole of the plot. In the second chapter of the book, it cuts to a point of view from Baron Harkonnen, who is explaining to one of his minions what's happening behind the scenes in terms of why House Atreides has taken over this particular planet and what he's going to do about it and how he's actually going to kill them all. So that's very quite peculiar. In the first two chapters, you're given the whole of the book, the whole of the plot of the book, and you theoretically know what's going to happen. And yet, I think that Herbert is still able to carry this through. Sort of, there's always questions there as to whether Paul really is this one that has been prophesied, whether the Harkonnens are actually going to do it and how they're going to do it. I think it's pretty good. I really, I really like this. This is um, one of my all-time, one of my father's all-time favourite books. And one thing he said to me um, at some point about ten years ago was um, uh, what he thought he might have uh, been aiming towards getting dementia. Was he said the one good thing about getting dementia is that you forget all those books you've read and you can go back and read things like Dune again as if you're reading it for the very first time. And I thought, oh yeah, that was pretty funny. Anyway, look, I think this is a, I think this is a cracker. It's. I really like Dune. It would have to be up there in one of my favourite all-time SF novels. So I'm quite happy to give this one four and a half out of five. What are your views, David? Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. because oh, that's actually, good. I mean, I, I must have read the original Dune oh, several, several times because it was reading it again or reading this part of it again it was very, very familiar. I mean, I, I knew all, everything that was going to happen. So I'm very familiar with the book. But this time around, it irritated me. And so there are a number of things. For a start, it's, it's full of all these pious statements, a lot of them from the, from the Bene Gesserit or, or the, uh, someone quoting from the life of Muad'Dib, who is the, uh, the Messiah character. And, and there's so many statements which are, you know, this, the world is like this. You know, it's just like Robert Heinlein stuff, you know. This is, this is the way things are. Don't argue, this is just the way things are. So that bugged me. The other thing with with the start of it, where he's, he's subjected to a kind of torture to see whether he's human or not, so he sticks his hand in this this device, which creates incredible pain, and he's not allowed to move; otherwise, he'll prove that he's not human. Now, for a start, you know, is this really what distinguishes human from the animal? The fact that you can withstand a lot of pain for a little while. I think animals can survive a lot of pain for some time. Anyway, leave that aside. And then there's this whole thing of. Is he, is, he the, is he the Messiah? Is he the one? 
It's just a bit like the, you know, uh, the Matrix. Is he? Am I the one? It keeps referring to this sense of terrible purpose in capitals, terrible purpose that he that he has. So there's that. And right in the very last few pages of, of the book, of the story, we discover, yes, yes, he is the one. He is the one. He's the Muad'Dib. He's Kwisatch Haderach. He's, he's the one. So, okay. And the other thing is that we have this villain, Baron Harkonnen, and he's just completely unbelievable. He's a complete cartoon villain. You know, grossly obese, so much so that he has to have little gravity lift things to, to carry his bulk around. Now, when you're when you're writing a, a, some fiction, you, you're told that if you want to indicate that a character isn't a good character, you know, you have him do something like like kick a cat or something. And if if he kicks the cat, then you know he's not he's not really a very good character. Well, Baron Harkonnen, I mean, you, you can imagine him biting the heads off kittens, you know. I mean, he's just, he's just <laughs> unbelievably awful. So, and the other thing about it, which I, which I felt wasn't great, was that the first two parts is in three parts in, in, the, in the magazines. In the first two parts, nothing happens. As you say, it's all set up. It's all about predicting what's going to be happening and, and sort of giving it, filling in the background. But there's actually almost no action mm. like they move from the old planet they're on to the new planet and that's you know if you look at it not until the the start of the third third part uh, that anything really starts to actually go on so yeah i actually got really irritated with reading it this time around and then and then the end of it because it's only part of the book it leaves you wide open in the air it sort of comes to a screeching halt and it, it really is begging for something to continue it because it really you know you sort of he, he and his mother are just abandoned in the desert, and you've got no idea whether they're going to survive or not. This it's just not, yeah. So that was my statement about why <laughs> they're telling me this time around. That's it. That's interesting that um, uh, the way you can look at a book differently. As we've said this in the past, you know what we thought was fantastic thirty years ago. You go back and reread it, and you think, yeah, and then it can be exactly the other way. Things so like, this was the suck fairy hitting oh, me. Okay. Yeah, we yeah, talked yeah. about the suck fairy. Yeah, suck fairy I, I've read this and I thought, no, the suck fairy's hit. Yeah, look, I, I thought this was all right. I I enjoyed this and um, uh, I'm sort of looking forward to the second part. I can't remember the last time I read this book. I think it must be 20, 25 years ago. I don't think, um, no, I don't think that um, I've read it in quite a long time. So a lot of it... I'd forgotten. And so from that perspective, I was sort of reliving my father's dream of uh, having the dementia as I came towards this one. And I, look, I liked it. I liked it. No, that's fine. That, it's, it's absolutely a matter of taste. In comparison to Glory Road, it's a, oh, bl- wow. it's a, bloody, <laughs> it's a bloody masterpiece. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And yeah, look, and I, and I admit it's better, better than uh, Wish World. It, it, it's, it's reasonably well written. It, it's reasonably well written. No, no <laughs> doubt That's dare me with fake praise if ever I heard it. Anyway. Oh, all right. well, never mind. Okay. So <laughs> my next one is one I think that Perry's going to have a, a go at me about because I don't think he likes it. But never mind. Let's, let's see. So this is Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Now, I have to admit, this is one of my favorite books, as, as is shown by the fact that the Penguin paperback I own, and which I reread, has been in my collection since my late teens. And I know this because I used to have this sort of silly coding scheme I used to put, put into books, uh, which, uh, which I gave away when I sort of got grown up and sensible. But it's, it has my funny code in, in, in at the start of it. So I've had it since I was probably 17 or 18. 
And it, I say it's one of my favorite books. The first thing to say about it is that it's really, it's a satire. It's not so much science fiction as satire, a satire about science and human nature and, and about religion. It's actually quite a funny satire on religion because uh, Vonnegut invents this whole religion called Birkonism. That's hard to say. Birkononism. Yeah, two ons. Birkononism. And the holy book of this uh, religion is ri was written by a man called Birkonon. And it has on its title page, Don't be a fool. Close this book at once. It is nothing but FOMA. FOMA is a word we find out which means lies. In other words, it's nothing but lies. Right at the very start of the book. So where do we start? We never, in fact, find out the last name of the first person protagonist. But he tells us that his first name's John. But the very first words in the book are, Call me Jonah, which is a bit of a reference there to Moby Dick, I think, which starts, Call me Ishmael. So we discover that he's a writer who's researching a book to be called The Day the World Ended, which is going to be about what various important people were doing on the day that the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And as part of this, he wants to research a scientist, Dr. Felix Honecker, and sometimes called the father of the atomic bomb. Honecker's dead by this stage, but he's left behind him three children, and the protagonist seeks them out to try and ask them about what their father was doing on that fateful day for his book. Now, all three of Honecker's children are rather strange. The protagonist tracks down two of them initially, uh, which are Angela and Newt, which is short for Newton. Angela's a tall, unattractive woman who is, was nevertheless married to a very handsome man. Newt, by contrast, is a midget, and uh, he, his mother died when giving birth to him. And there's a strong suggestion that Felix Honecker wasn't actually his biological father. And then there's Frank or Franklin, uh, who was the eldest son. He's been missing for some time. Nobody knows where he is. But he's remembered as being rather a nerd. And he was obsessed with building model railways, things like that. So Dr. Felix Honecker is depicted as having been one of those kind of scientists who are excited by scientific problems without thinking through what might be the unfortunate consequences of, of the solutions they come up with. So as well as the atom bomb, we found out that he was asked at one stage by the military to come up with a solution to their troops and vehicles being bogged down in mud. And it's not long before we discover that he did come up with a solution to this, which is a particular crystalline arrangement of water molecules, and he calls it ice nine. And so it's, it's just a particular structure of, of ice in this particular form. And because it's kind of like a crystal, a seed, a seed of ice nine dropped into a pool of water will immediately convert it to all to ice nine. It's like dropping a, a crystal of you know, copper sulfate or something into, into a supersaturated solution, it all crystallizes instantly. And the, the, the important thing about ice nine is that it's solid at room temperature. And he was playing with this, this material that he'd, he'd, put, he'd managed to create on the night that he died. Anyway, to keep the story going, the, the protagonist eventually reads a magazine article which reveals the location of Frank Honecker. And he's living on the Caribbean island of San Lorenzo, and he's been appointed there as a major general by the dictator of the island, Papa Monzano. And the article also features a stunningly attractive young woman, Mona Manzano, who has been adopted as Papa's daughter. And the protagonist sees this picture and instantly falls in love with this woman. And uh, he gets a, a journalistic commission to go to the island and write a feature story about it. And so off he heads. But on the way, he discovers that both Angela and Newt Honecker are aboard the same plane. They're going off to reunite with their brother, who they've only just discovered where he is too. 
Anyway, all the way through this book, right from the very start, we're treated to excerpts of the teaching of Birkenon, a black man whose birth name was Lionel Boyd Johnson. And Johnson was one of the co-founders of the Republic of San Lorenzo, that's now become a religious teacher. And he writes many volumes of the books of Birkenon, which are full of a really sardonic, very humorous view of humanity and God. Uh, I'll just give you a bit of an example of that, if I might. So here's the creation story, according to Bokunon. In the beginning, God created the earth, and he looked upon it in his cosmic loneliness. And God said, let us make living creatures out of mud, so the mud could see what we've done. And God created every living creature that now moves, and one of them was man. Mud as man alone could speak. God leaned close as mud as man sat up, looked around and spoke. Man blinked. What is the purpose of all this? He asked politely. Everything must have a purpose, asked God. Certainly, said man. Then I leave it to you to think of one for all of this, said God. And he went away. <laughs> I think that's funny. Eventually we discovered that each of Honecker's children took with them uh, a sliver of ice nine the, the night that their father died. And each of them has used his potential value to secure things they want. So Angela gets hold of a good-looking husband. Newt manages an affair with a Russian midget, his same, same size as him. And Frank gets his official position on San Lorenzo. Okay, now we're going to have some spoilers. So if you want to read the book, you might want to skip from here. So on the island, Papa Monzano is dying in terrible pain from uh, cancer. And uh, eventually the, they find him dead, frozen solid having touched a sliver of ice nine to his lips. So he touches it to his lips and all the water in his body becomes converted to this form of uh, water called ice nine. So without going into too much more detail, there's, a, there's a, an air display happening and there's an accident. And one of the aircraft crashes into the building where Papa's body is lying. The body falls into the ocean. And because he, his body is seeded with ice nine the ice nine propagates throughout the seas the entire seas of the world freezing them into solid blocks of ice nine anyway the book ends with the protagonist setting off to climb the island's only mountain and he's planning to go there to lie back and thumb his nose at god before swallowing a piece of ice nine himself look i really like the book it's just it's i know it's not to everyone's taste but it's got a lot of vonnegut's cynicism about humanity in it and it's i think it's very funny it's a really clever satire. I, I like it a lot. I would have liked it back in the 70s, I think. Not so much now. Not so much now. That's fair enough. I'm just old and cynical. and um, Well, this is a cynical book. It is a cynical book, but... Yeah, I, I know it's a cynical book, but I don't know. It just doesn't do a lot for me. It's sort of... Um, no, I, I, I always kept on thinking he was trying to get at something and I couldn't work out what the hell it was. <laughs> and um, uh, there's some there's some very amusing pieces in it. Uh, I, I will admit, but no, nah, not overly for me. Not my favourite. Not my matter favorite. of taste. Matter yeah, of taste. absolutely a matter of taste. Absolutely. Okay, so what we got next? Well, next we move to the winner. Uh-huh. Uh I've got to tell you that um, uh, Way Station by Clifford Simak, which is also referred, also titled "Here Gather the Stars." which I think is a bloody awful, mm -hmm. when it was published in Galaxy in June and August of 1963. Waystation's much better, in my view. This is one of my all-time favourite SF novels. I reckon the device to make a list of the top 10 
top 20, it'd be in it without any problem. Uh, June would probably also be in there. Cat's Cradle, I'm sorry to have to tell you, David, would not. That's um, fine. That, but uh, Waystation is. Now, I'll give you a basic background to this and then uh, a fair bit of talking about it. Uh, the main character, Enoch Wallace, is an old man when the book starts. Set in 1960, but then you, you get the backstory. A few years after returning from fighting for Lincoln, the, the Northern forces in the American Civil War, he returns to his family farm, works there for a while. His father dies. He buries his father next to his mother in their family plot on, on the farm. And as he's mourning his parents, somebody walks up the road and comes in and sits next to him and starts talking to him and asks for a glass of, asks, asks for some water. So he gives him some water. And the guy, Enoch, says to him, so have you come a long way? Yeah, a very long way. You got very far to go? No, I think I've got to where I was aiming. He not looks at him and thinks, oh, what's this guy talking about? He says, no, you're, you're the man that I'm looking for. And it co comes about that the person that he is actually talking to is an alien. And uh, the alien is here on a mission on Earth in the 1860s to set up a way station, which is part, which is going to be a, a hub of a wide galactic network of matter transmission stations. The idea being that you can't trans transfer your, your matter from one one side of the galaxy to the other because there's lots of gas and dust in the way and therefore you're going to get interference. So you have to make shortish jumps, sort of basically like relays. You sort of move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and you have to get transferred each time. And so this particular alien who... Enoch calls Ulysses after the Union General, gets Wallace to look after this particular station. That all works very, very well. A hundred years later, we're back into the 1960s. Now, if, for those of us who are of that particular age, we'll remember that the early 1960s were a bit of a fraught time in the world, diplomatically. Both the Soviet Union and the USA had nuclear weapons, and they were basically going head-to-head -head in a very cold war that was rapidly heating up over Cuba and various other little flashpoints around the world. So that's what's happening on Earth. But also what's happening in the galaxy is that galactic diplomacy is also starting to disintegrate in pretty much exactly the same way. That there, somewhere um, in the past, there's been a loss of this thing called a talisman. This particular talisman and its custodian have gone missing. The talisman is this particular object which radiates peace wherever it goes. The custodian's job uh, is to take this particular talisman and take it around to the galaxy and spread a sense of peace and goodwill everywhere the talisman goes, but it's gone missing. And so there's lots of problems with the um, particular things that are going on in the galaxy. There's lots going on back here on Earth. Now, at the same time, Enoch Wallace realises that he's being watched. There's a group of men that have basically set themselves up around his particular farm that are keeping track of him. They've finally figured out that there's this guy that's been sitting in this particular farm for 120 years and is not getting any older. 
He still keeps uh, subscribing to um, magazines and still keeps getting them. Uh, nobody seems to visit except for the mailman who brings everything uh, during, during the day. He doesn't seem to require huge amounts of food from anybody uh, and they have no idea what the heck is going on. So they're keeping an eye on him. At some time, slightly in the past, one of the particular people that, uh, one of the particular aliens that was passing through the way station died overnight in the way station. Enoch Wallace contacts Galactic Central, who are the ones that handle all of the, um, the, the travel network, and they tell him that uh, the body needs to be buried on the land in which it died in utilising the customs of the people that are there. So he takes the body out and he buries it next to his mother and father. Ulysses turns up sometime later after Enoch realises that there are particular people that are uh, watching him and tells him that the body has been taken. And this is a bit of a problem because Ulysses says there's a large group of factions inside the Galactic Central that are actually trying to close down the Earth Station because they think it's a backwater and they want to basically push out into other parts of the galaxy. So it's a matter of, you know, we've only got a certain amount of resources. Why are we putting it into this backwater that's not of use to anybody? Let's go out here where we think there's a legend from about where our ancestors came from. So you've got a number of things going on here. You've got the galactic diplomacy going on in the background. You've got um, uh, the Earth diplomacy coming apart. You've got the fact that Enoch's under, um, under surveillance and has to try and get the body back. Also, he's made a bit of a mistake because a young woman who's deaf and mute, who lives in the nearby farm, has come running onto his particular farm and has been chased by the father and uh, with a, a bullwhip. Uh, she's done something. She has this ability to be able to sort of do slight mending of broken things. So she, uh, Wallace at one stage watches her mend the broken wing of a butterfly. And some one of her brothers or uh, one of her brothers says something to her or grabs her. And she puts a sort of a hex on him. And he basically clams up and he basically can't move. He rolls up into a fetal position. The father doesn't want, doesn't like this and goes after the woman and, and hits her with a whip a few times and leaves a few marks on her, but she takes off. She hexes him and rushes off, and she ends up rushing onto Wallace's farm. He takes her and takes her into the house. Now, he's not supposed to take anybody into this particular house where the way station is because this is a separate area where when he is in this particular house, he does not age, and it is sacrosanct that he's the only one that's supposed to be there but she comes in and stays there he fixes her up and then goes back out and confronts the father and the two sons that have come to get her back and tells them all to go away that he'll bring the he'll um he doesn't know where he doesn't know where the the woman is but if he finds her he will bring her back but they are not to do anything to harm her because um She's under his protection, if you like. So there's all these things coming together. Enoch gets in contact with the people that are surveilling him and says they have to get the, the body back, which they end up doing. And things need to be resolved all the way right across the board. You can see where a lot of this is heading right from the start. It's fairly well telegraphed in terms of the fact that 
Ulysses says they need a new custodian. We all know who the new custodian's going to be. I've already mentioned the person um, in this particular spiel. We know that's going to happen, and it all does, and everything works out well, and Wallace is going to end up being Earth's representative for the galaxy, which is very pretty much pretty much the way that it's was always always going to be. Now there's a very interesting article that was written by David Pringle close to fifty years ago, David, in nineteen seventy two in yeah. Foundation. And he says that um, a few things about Clifford Simak. And he says in Simak's truest fictions the season is always autumn uh, and the hour is always evening, which is perfectly apt. And it's perfectly apt for this particular book because that's sort of this rural sort of view that he gives. Now, he also says that he's discovered that there are 12 fundamental themes in all of Simak's fiction. And he's labelled them as follows. And you can pretty much tick these off as you go. The old man, the house, listening to the stars, the neighbour, the alien, the pastoral, animals. That's the one thing that's missing in this, the animals. The evils of the city. Yeah, there you are. Um, Servants. No, no servants in this. The frontier, bartering and the artefact. So he thinks 12 of those and they pretty much are all covered in this. And if you remember back to when we were discussing... Uh, the Big Front Yard by Clifford Simak uh, a while back in one of the previous Hugo Time Machines. That's very much an earlier version of this particular book. This is, I think, one of Simak's best. Uh, I think it's got everything in it that I really like. It's a quiet book. It's very narrow in focus because even though the galaxy and all the rest of the stars are out there, the whole of the action takes place in this house and around a small little farm area and a little bit adjacent to the other farm. And that's it. It's a very rural, pastoral sort of feel to it. It's beautifully written. I just love this book. I really do. And I gave it 4.7 out of 5. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you'll be pleased to know that in this case, I totally agree with you. It's Good one of man. my favorite, one of my favorite uh, science fiction novels too. And Simak certainly has a... A very unique writing style. Sometimes it gets a bit irritating. You see how often he starts a sentence with the word for. But, but, so it's very characteristic of him. But nevertheless, he has a beautiful writing style. It's very light. And he, he, does, uh, he does have interesting themes. I'm surprised that David Pringle left out one obvious common thing in Simak's work. And that is the value of someone who's disabled or considered to be uh, stupid or deficient in some way. There's certainly one of those in uh, in the big front yard. Yep. Who, and uh, it turns out to be a person who everyone thinks is, is just a, a village idiot, but in fact is the only one who can communicate with the aliens. And here we have this young woman who's uh, who's deaf and dumb, but she's the one who, well, no spoil, we give the spoiler away, she's the one who becomes the custodian of, of this of the talisman. So that's that's also a very common kind of theme in his books. I, I think I like all of his books. The other thing that's worth saying, I think, about his books is that they haven't dated. You can read Waystation today. It could have been put out today with just a few little tweaks to it, and and nobody would have raised an eyebrow because it it uh, it, it it really hasn't dated in almost any sense. So yeah, I, I really like it. I think it was a a, a deserving winner. Um, certainly think probably June would have come, the June world would have come second, should have come second. You, you actually have the results, don't you, the, 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 the scores? of Yes, there's somebody, yeah, somebody found, this happens um, 
well, these days, all of the voting statistics are all over the place. You can get everything. You know, uh, you can get a list after after all of the voting is completed and all the awards are handed out. If you know where to go to, you can get details of every single work that was nominated, how many votes they got, and you can also get the details of all the voting in terms of who came first in the first round and so on. Back in 1964, it was basically first past the post. So whoever got the most uh, votes was going to be the winner. But a lot of the voting stats from the early years have been lost. Uh, They were probably just typed up, handed, put into some papers. The papers were lost or misplaced and they're no longer with us. But 1964, we do have the final Hugo results. Now, obviously, we know that Waystation won. That got 63 votes. Second was Witch World with 54 and Glory Road with 54. Oh, good God. Dune World, 51. Cat's Cat's Cradle, 30. No vote, 15. No award, 7. So it's interesting that one of your favourites, Cat's Cradle, came five. Yeah, but it's it's one of those books which only appeals to a certain slice of of people. So that's fine. But but it's fascinating that that Glory Road came above June. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, Heinlein was flavour of the month at that point, wasn't he? I mean, mm. just about every he was considered to be the dean of science fiction or the best science fiction writer ever. Um, and as you and I know, around this time, it was basically, nah, it wasn't really going very well. So that's so that's interesting. I think, uh, I certainly think they made the right choice here with picking Waystation. And I was, um, I was quite happy with that. Now, just as a point of something that uh, I've been looking into and which I like to do is have a look at other possible novel nominees. I'm not going to discuss them, but if you want to make a comment, David, please feel free to do so. That's okay. The ones I've got, I've only got another four which might have made the final ballot list. Walter Tevis, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Oh, yes, that's a good book. I d- yeah, I wonder whether that picked up more because of the David Bowie film rather than because of the novel. Don't know. Haven't ever read it. Don't know. No, I have. I have. It's, it's well worth reading. Uh, Pierre Buell with Planet of the Apes. H. Ben Piper, Space Viking. Yeah. He was a little fuzzy a while back. The Space Vikings probably bit. And Philip K. Dick, The Game Players of Titan. I can't place it. I know I've read it, no, I don't but I can't place it. I've I've got this thing in my head about Philip K. Dick where I've got this long stream of books that I read in a fairly close time frame, and they all just merge into each other. And I can't. I have to go. I have to go back and reread them and figure that out which one it is. But anyway, so those are those four. I think. <clears throat> Look, uh, probably the Dick, uh, uh, the Walter Tevis, if it was known all that well, could probably have got on. Well, it certainly should have gone on instead of Bloody Glory Road, that's for sure. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. If, uh, if Heinlein put a book out, it was always going to make the final ballot. And that was it. There you go. So, moving on. Moving on to the shorts. Right. Short fiction. Again, what we'll do is we'll work our way through the nominees and then get up to the... Um, up to the winner. Now, there were five nominees on the ballot for the uh, novel. There's only four for the short fiction, which seems a bit strange. I don't know why they did that, but anyway. The first one that I'm going to deal with is a, a novella called Code 3 by Rick Raphael. I don't know anything about this writer. I've never read anything else by him. This was published in Analogue, February 1963, so you're getting quite a lot of Analogue stuff here. Now, 
this is set in the future in North America. The North American continent is crisscrossed by these huge three throughways, miles wide, allowing car speeds of up to 500 miles per hour. Um, the story, this story code three, follows one night shift for a three-person throughway patrol team uh, vehicle. They, they send these big vehicles out, which are sort of these massive things that uh, have three people in them. They've got sleeping, eating, um, uh, washing facilities, uh, and also a, um, a medical kit because their job is to keep the throughways running. Uh, now, these lanes that they have for these uh, throughways are about a mile wide, and people move between one and another. And of course, moving at that speed, things are going to go wrong. And when they do, there's huge accidents. And the job of the... Um, throughway patrol vehicles is to clean them up and to keep everything moving but the bulk of the story is really taken up and set up in terms of how all this stuff works and how it all comes together and showing the crew at work and there's hints about what is going to happen there's this um, car that's uh, been stolen and is uh, taking off uh, going at vast speeds when it in, in the wrong particular lane zigzagging around all over the place and so you know that that's what the thing is going to be at the end is what they're going to have to deal with but the final payoff of this is really very rushed uh, and it's poorly handled from a tension point of view. You get all this stuff all building up and suddenly, oh, it's all finished. Yep. All done. Yep. Um, there's not much to this. Uh, it's competent, but fairly forgettable. And uh, I only gave it a 3.2 out of 5, but yeah. really wasn't much to it. Yeah, uh, yeah there's so, so much about it which I, I thought was really odd. I mean, he, here you are in the far future. Well, not the far future, but in, in, the, in the future anyway. And you've got all this fantastic technology uh, which allows all these, these th throughways. But, you know, they've still got human beings driving these cars. There's no, there's no auto automation of, of the vehicles. There's no method of controlling them within particular lanes on, on, on the freeway. They just get out there, travel at 500 kilometres, 500 miles an hour and smash into other cars. I mean, it's, it seems crazy. Death, Death Race 2000 is what I thought of all the time. I thought, oh, here it is. It's just going to be a demolition derby all the way right through. Absolutely. So there, there was that. And, and the other thing, as you say, it, it just sort of peters out at the end. And even sort of there's a budding romance because it's full of misogynist stuff, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But there's this budding romance between the, the lady who's running the, the medical team on the, of the medical clinic on board this vehicle. And uh, you, you know, you start to get this impression that she's she's actually gone for for the guy who drives this slightly older guy who drives this vehicle, and and then that just that that also just peters out. Now I wasn't very keen on the romantic part of it anyway, but the fact that that just completely peters out too. You think, oh yeah, okay. So no, I didn't think this was very good at all. So no, I wouldn't have given it very many, many points. So I don't know why it ended up on the ballot. No, it's hard to work out. But looking ahead, there's another one utilizing the same group and the same thing gets nominated later on in a in a couple of, in a couple of years time yeah okay well that'll be interesting so that's interesting so i'm <laughs> now the next one we talk about you know why things got on the ballot that shouldn't have got on the ballot well <sighs> what do we have we've got this this story this is kind of a what would you say novelette sort of length yep no, I've got it as novella, but but a novelette, no, novella, it's sort of up around that length, yeah. yeah. Novella-length uh, work by Edgar Rice Burroughs called Savage Pellucidar. Now, a bit of background. 
Edgar Rice Burroughs died in 1950, and after he died, there were rumours that he'd left behind a bundle of unfinished stories or unpublished stories. But it wasn't until the 1960s that uh, his son, Hubert, confirmed that, if, yes, this was the case, there was a bundle of stuff left behind. And among that material was this story, Savage Pellucidar, which was apparently written in 1942. Now, as far as I can work out from research on Wikipedia, as far as I can gather, Edgar Asperger stopped writing fiction entirely uh, once the Pacific War began. After Pearl Harbor, he uh, became an official war correspondent. And after that, after he left, after the war was over, his health was pretty precarious and he died, as I say, of a heart attack in 1950. So pretty much 1942, when Savage Pellucidar was written, is, is about the end of his, uh, end of his period as, as a writer. So Pellucidar. Pellucidar is Burroughs' imagined world on the inner surface of a hollow earth. And he set six full-length novels in this place, including one which is titled... Tarzan at the Earth's Core. Well, I haven't read that one. I've got to read that one. Tarzan at the Earth's Core. Needless to say, this hollow earth is highly implausible and scientifically impossible. But nevertheless, I've read the first couple of books in the series because I actually produced them for standard ebooks. They're now in the public domain. And I read the first couple, which are At the Earth's Core and Pellucidar. And they're they're entertaining, pretty entertaining, really. So, but I don't want to talk too much about them because we'll be talking about them, in fact, in a future episode coming up. But suffice it to say that in the Earth's interior, as imagined by Burroughs, is this vast land. It's almost the same surface area as the, as the the outer surface of the Earth. Well, it is the same surface area, and in fact, more of it is land than than sea. So, it's a very large area. And it's populated by prehistoric creatures like um, Mesozoic reptiles like pterosaurs and Paleolithic beasts like saber-toothed tigers and various races of primitive humans. So Savage Pellucidar begins very abruptly and it seems seems right in the middle of of action as as a complete direct continuation of whatever had been happening in the previous story. So you've got these two groups of people who are sailing around on on one of these vast seas, hunting for each other because they've been broken up by events that have happened in the previous story. And uh, the the characters in this story, apart from two people from the outer world who are called, get this, David and Perry, they have names like Argilak, Uwa, or Hodon the Fleet One, and of course, Diane the Beautiful. They've apparently been split up by this accident in the previous episode. There was a hot air balloon at the end of the previous story that got down, whatever, whatever happened. So you're already right in the middle of this and you really needed to have read the previous story to to get anywhere with it. But even setting that aside, this really seems like it was written when Burroughs' creativity was in decline. He was only 67, but I think he'd really run out of things to say. It really feels like in this he was hardly trying. There's some, you know, a couple of reasonable scenes of action, but particularly everything everything gets wound up in the last few paragraphs. Really, is a total of highly improbable coincidences where all these separated people suddenly dis- rediscover each other by accident, and everybody leaves happily ever after. Uh, it's really, I think, it's a pity that this very inferior work was published at all, and I can only imagine that it got nominated and reached the Hugo ballot purely on the basis of nostalgia for. Edgar Rice Burroughs' previous work. I would rate this two out of five if I had to give it a rating at all. So, yeah, it it wasn't great. Yeah, I I gave it 2.2 out of five. I'm not sure why I added the point two. But, you know, just sometimes 
I don't know. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you can understand publishing it 13 years after his death, but for it to appear on the Hugo ballot? Oh, no, no, no. Just not. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, for sure. Yep. So what have we got next? Okay, well, next up, we've got A Rose for Ecclesiastes by Roger Zelazny, published as a novelette in Fantasy and Science Fiction, November 1963. This is a magnificent story. It really is. And it's always high in any reckoning of best science fiction stories ever written. It tells the story of a linguist and poet, Gallinger, who travels to Mars with a scientific expedition in order to gain an understanding of the Martian language. Yes, there are Martians, ancient Martians, living on Mars. Now, Mars is inhabited by an ancient dying race and seems to have breathable air. Yeah, I know there's problems with this, but putting all that aside, Gallinger's exploration of the Martian myths and traditions, his discovery of their use of language, art and dance, and his uncovering of their dark secret is really beautifully handled by Zelazny in this. You could argue that the story's assumptions about Mars, you know, the fact that there's anybody living there, there's a breathable atmosphere, are all basically ridiculous and should blow the, the thing out of the water. But this is just a sheer brilliant piece of work. Absolutely fantastic. My view, this should have been an absolute runaway winner. It had a fantastic Kenneth Spock cover on the front of the uh, issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction. It's hard to know what to say about this because I would have thought that just about everybody who's read any science fiction should have read this particular should have read this particular story. A lot of people think that Zelazny sort of sprung up out of nowhere, but he already published about twenty or thirty stories prior to this. But he just let everything flow in this one. It's just it's it's wonderful. Uh, Gallinger starts off as being oh. A real pain in the bum. He's really egotistical. Um, uh, he, he picks up languages at the drop of a hat. He's a world, well-known poet who people think is right up there with the top half dozen poets that have ever lived in the whole of Earth's history. And he, and he lives off that and he runs with that all the time. And you can tell that he's basically very off-putting and practically nobody likes him at all. But his slow interactions with the Martians and the young woman that he meets who he then has sex with and interbreeds with there's another assumption that you might go well pff, you know that throws that out of the water it's all handled incredibly well and I just really really like this story I just think it's got everything going for it that uh, I think that anybody reading science fiction would really like so you're going to tell me you hated it, David, are you? Is that uh... obviously I'm in a grumpy mood this this, <laughs> uh, this episode because uh, this this again was a, an effect of the suck fairy for me. I remember this story fondly, uh, and reading it again, I'm thinking, hmm. I suppose the, th the things which irritated me about it are, are these the scientific nonsense of of the atmosphere, the fact that the people on Mars. Uh, are really basically humans and he's able to uh, have sexual intercourse and, and to in fact impregnate this young woman okay the, I sort of I sort of see that but the other thing is is that as you say that the character himself is so annoying and irritating to, to begin with it's a bit hard to get past that and I'm sort of reading it and there's so many references to to things that uh, to classical literature or whatever which are just thrown off in a sort of really snobby way. I mean, like there's a bit where he refers to 
You know, I felt like Ulysses in Melibolge. Now, I had to look this up, work, try and work this out. Now, this, this is a reference to Dante's Inferno, where Virgil and Dante are introduced to uh, the hero Ulysses in hell. And he's in the, the circle of hell, which deals with fraud. Why is he there? Because he committed this huge fraud with the wooden horse in Troy. You see, mm-hmm. so he's been condemned to hell yep. for fraud. But anyway, but you know, so you you, you look this, this this up and try to make any sense of how how Ulysses felt. You know, I felt like Ulysses in Malibolge. But you don't get any impression from Dante what what Ulysses was thinking or feeling at the time. You think, well, okay. It's a bit strange. There's quite a few other little references like that. You know, I swallowed my comments and followed her like Samson in Gaza. Now, the story of Samson in Gaza, if you look it up, is Samson went off and had, you know, spent a night with a prostitute. So I swallowed my comments and followed her like Samson in Gaza. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's obscure and it, it doesn't kind of gel. Yeah, but I, that... that... To, to me, to me, this just basically builds up his character in this. Because, yeah, well, yeah. He's, he's, I mean, he's a, he's a real prick, and he says he's, he's pretentious. He says, he's just totally pretentious. pretentious. Yeah, very pretentious, and he's a snob. Yes. Okay. So that's fair enough. But but the culminating incident is where he's translated the the book of uh, Ecclesiastes from the Bible into Martian, and he reads this to them. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is the one that says that begins. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Everything is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Every day is like every other. People are always the same. They're always bad and they're never going to get any better. This is, you know. But he reads this to them and somehow he's trying to convince them that this is inspiring because someone on earth came out with this misanthropic bit of prose uh, but we somehow survived and went on beyond that. So, so now that now that the Martians are, are in this dire state, then you know by by following Earth's example and ignoring this Ecclesiastes guy, they can go on. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I can I can see that. I... Uh, and, and then the young woman who is you know he's he's this, they've discovered that human beings can impregnate the Martians, and so the Martian race can continue because their dark secret is that they they their men are no longer potent or able to um, to impregnate women so we, we've discovered that at least one earth human can impregnate a, a martian female so you think that the, the martians would be keen to get more male humans back so that they can increase you know they can continue the race but they take this young woman away and and he convinces them not to kill her but that, that's it. I, I, I just couldn't make sense of it this time around. I just couldn't. So uh, <laughs> maybe well, it's just me this time around. Well, again, I, I can't remember how long ago it was that I read this. And again, it must be 20, 25 years. And so I'd forgotten quite a lot of it. And yes, I take your point about the fact that there are a lot of those basic assumptions that he makes about the interbreeding, the, the Martian atmosphere and all the rest of it. I, I still liked it. I just... I, I just like this story. That's just it. I mean, it was well written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grant you that. A lot of a lot of what I get, I think, is an, an emotional response to the to the stories, and the way that I try and work out why. And um, I'm not sure why I had such a strong emotional response to this one. Uh, it was hard for me to um, articulate properly, but um, no, nah, I liked it. You didn't. That's cool. Of all the, all the nominees, I think this one should have won. I, I grant you that. So, but 
Yeah, okay, all right. Well, I agree but with I, that. I'm now going to go on to the book, to the, to the story which did win. Did win, yeah. The one that did win. Um, so, and this is called No Truce with Kings by Paul Anderson. The, the cover of fantasy and science fiction uh, that this is in calls this a short novel, but it really only fills about 50 pages in the magazine, so I imagine that at the best you could call it a novella. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, it, it's, it's set on the Pacific coast of America after a major war. Probably a nuclear war, I think, has happened. Uh, they talk about Texas being sort of this black lands which have been uh, devastated. But it hasn't, hasn't really seems to have resulted in the destruction of, of the major cities. It's, but it's left America broken up into a patchwork of, of states. And the focus in this story is on a region with, whose capital is San Francisco. And as the story opens, we're treated to uh, the mess room carousing at a place called Fort Nakamura, which is a fortress um, in the rock of the Sierra Mountains. And the commander there, Colonel McKenzie, Colonel McKenzie receives a telegram from San Francisco saying that the current judge, you can read that as president, the current judge, uh, who is Owen Brodsky, has been impeached and that McKenzie is hereby ordered to turn over his command to the forces of the new judge, Humphrey Fallon. Now, McKenzie eventually decides not to accept this order or to pretend that he hasn't received it and to fight on in the name of Judge Fallon. But his daughter, Laura, however, is married to a Captain Thomas Daniellis, who is a Fallon supporter. And Mackenzie allows his daughter to leave to rejoin her husband, knowing that soon they'll be on the opposite sides of a civil war. And indeed, there is a civil war between these two factions. And most of the story is really the following, is really following the progress of the civil war, which ebbs, ebbs and flows. We're not quite sure who's going to win for quite a while. Now, an additional important factor is the role of the Espers, E-S-P-E-R-S, a group which appears to have great psychic powers, including the ability to deliver these powerful, destructive psi blasts. The Espers, however, claim to be peaceful, and they intend to remain neutral. Nevertheless, uh, Captain McKenzie suspects that they'll be on the side of the uh, Fallon forces because Fallon's promised them protection and support. So most of the story is about the progress of this war. But we have these intervening packages passages in italics, which are discussions between individuals who appear to have a, a long-term plan for the future of humanity, and they're prepared to push this plan forward, despite it involving violence and death. Seem, they, they seem to have, it's a bit like Asimov's foundation, where they're able to predict the future, and that they can see that there's a path that humanity has to follow, and that they're, they're trying to make sure that it does follow this path. Anyway, we, we began to understand that these individuals in these passages are associated with this group of espers. The balance of war eventually turns toward the side supporting the previous judge, Bridge Brodsky, and Colonel McKenzie is responsible for a raid on an esper settlement, during which he discovers that their supposed psychic powers are in fact the result of alien technology. The aliens having a plan to tame mankind so before they're able to get off the earth and encounter the galactic community. So in the end, Mackenzie's command enters San Francisco and destroys the Esper headquarters and reveals the alien's plot. So here again, like a number of stories we've, we've talked about on the podcast, here's another story where mankind is somehow able to overcome the superior alien technology by you know, the, the sheer force of arms and human courage and bravery and all that sort of stuff. So this was, I thought it was okay, but not great. Um, you, could, you could call it a piece of military SF, I suppose, with the emphasis on the military. 
And there's a fairly interesting scenario of, of this shattered United States trying to put itself together again. But that's about all. I, did it deserve to win? Yeah, I don't know. I really think, yeah, out of the five, I, I think even, even with my criticisms, I think I would have voted for a rose for Ecclesiastes. And Savage Pellucida, I didn't deserve to be on the ballot at all. And then Code Red was very ordinary. So, yeah, it was a pretty poor year, I think, for uh, for candidates. The the thing about No Truce with Kings, the one thing that I picked up on it that I thought was in it is that one side of the civil war wants a bigger government and the other side wants a smaller government where it's run by small, smallish clans. So they want it to be a... Um, uh, more person-based, you know, more at much much lower level, so a lot more sort of libertarian sort of style. It's pretty obvious which side uh, Anderson was on too on this one. He didn't like big government, and uh, that comes across pretty obviously in this particular um, in this particular story. You sort of have to think that maybe Zelazny's was story was a bit out there, or um, and that Anderson stuff was it's competent but not overly inspiring. And maybe that was just enough for them yeah. to be able to uh, to go with that. Well, it's got all this rah-rah military stuff in it, you know, fighting stuff, you know. I mean, people, a lot of readers like that sort of stuff. So if you look at if you look at the voting, the voting, we'll go back to the voting again. Uh, as I said, first past the post, so there's no, there's no runoffs or anything of, of that sort like we have now. Uh, no Truce with Kings uh, comes in at number 93. Gives, well, sorry, comes in with 93 votes. Code three is second, oh. sixty-seven. Oh gosh, God, I don't know why. I mean, uh, yeah, anyway, just not even go there. Um, Rose for Ecclesiastes with forty-seven, only just pipping Savage Pellucidar at forty-four. Oh, good grief! Oh, well, that that is that is very. <laughs> it's inexplicable. Odd. It's just. Very odd, and yeah. um, uh, so even with my criticisms of of, uh, of Arrest for Ecclesiastes, it's certainly far better written than any of the other things in, in the ballot. Yeah, that's right. And so people, I think, look at the Zelazny story as being the start of his exploding outwards in terms of his style and his subject matter. And so maybe that's where they sort of say, "Oh, this is the one where he then after this he kicks off and um, the doors of his face and a whole lot of other things that come out later on, Lord of Light and everything sort of basically starts from here. Up until now, he was sort of a, a journeyman and then he just basically decided to let it all rip and from here on in, it just, he just took off. Um, but... Odd, odd voting. That's all I can say. Just very odd yeah, voting. Very odd. Very indeed. odd. Now, um, looking at what other possible short nominees should be on there, because most of these I don't, I don't remember or don't know, but I've heard of most most of these people. Michael Moorcock had a couple of Ulrich uh, uh-huh. novellas, Black Swords Brothers and Dead God's Homecoming, both of which would probably be better than. Some of the stories on this. Uh, Fritz Leiber had uh, a story, a novella in the Change War. Remember the uh, the big time? Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah from that one. Uh, Aldous had a couple. Murray Leinster's uh, had a med service uh, novella called The Hate Disease. A. Bertram Chandler, The Winds of If, uh, John Grimes um, in these John Grimes series. Now, is that the first time an Australian... Oh, mind you, it didn't it appear on didn't the didn't appear on it, but anyway, yeah. uh, that was just ones that might have got there. There's another Farfin of the Grey Mouser story by Fritz Leiber, uh, Bazaar of the Bizarre. Um, Cliff Senek, there's a 
deluge by uh, Zena Henderson, a, a, a people story. And of course, there's, as it was at this stage, there's a Cordwainer Smith novelette in the Instrumentality of Mankind series called Thick Blue Count Two. Now, Cordwainer Smith on a really, really bad day is going to be better than at least two of the stories that are on this. <laughs> Nothing could be as bad as Savage Pelosi now. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, look, I think they think this one, I reckon in this particular category, they got it wrong. I think I rose for Ecclesiastes, to me, is clearly the better of uh, the stories, but that, yep. that's the way it goes. I thought we should say that um, it's been can be quite tricky to track down some of these pieces of short fiction, particularly in the in the magazines in which they originally appeared. But Perry has been doing his research and uh, he was able to find uh, copies of these magazines uh, all on the Internet Archive, which, if you don't know about it, this is archive.org is the website, which is a tremendous organisation, not-for-profit, one of the great treasures of the Internet, I think. And both Perry and I have donated money to them in the past. They have appeals every so often to support them. And if you get the chance, we urge you to do the same. They deserve to be supported. And a couple of other um, websites which are run by fans, I believe, uh, which are of great use to us in this particular podcast. And if anybody's interested in looking at the history of uh, the genre and the field, both of these other two websites are quite useful. That is the um, Internet Science Fiction Database, isfdb.com, which allows you to look at, uh, well, search for uh, stories under the titles and also the author's name. And also the other one, which I use a lot in this particular series of the Hugo Time Machine, which is the Science Fiction Award Database, SFADB, which has listings of all of the all of the major awards, uh, the nominees, uh, the winners, and where possible, and has copies of the book covers from the originals, which is excellent stuff. And I will um, we'll make sure that we have uh, links to both of those in the, the in the show notes. Yep. All three of those particular sites are invaluable for us to be able to do this research and read these, because as David said, some of these things are hard to find. Some of them never get reprinted and don't ever turn up in any collections of an author's works for whatever reason. Or if they do, the books are out of print. And of course, not allowed to go to the library at the moment, uh, David. No, we're not, no, no. So um, uh, we can't get there. We can't get to bookshops and most of the SF uh, specialty bookshops are gone. Uh, so we can't get this stuff anymore and uh, a lot of it's out of print. So we're very, very grateful for all the help we've been able to get from those three particular websites. Indeed. Now, moving on in 1964, there were, there were other awards that were presented. We only look really at the um, fiction awards because that's all we've got time for. And we're already um, coming up to an hour and a half on this particular uh, the episode. Now, the best professional artist at that time, Ed Emschwiller, best professional magazine, Analogue. Yeah, well, that was always a perennial, not always, but uh, it had a fair number of stories on the, this year's ballot, 1964's ballot. Best Amateur Magazine was Amra, edited by George Skithers. That was a sword and sorcery fanzine. And the best SF book publisher was Ace Books. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Of the, books, of the books on this particular um, 
ballot, I believe that, if I go back and have a quick look, I think it was which world, yeah, which world was an ace. Now, I don't know whether it was an ace double. No, I don't think it would have been because I think it was probably 180, 200 pages. So, so it would have been too long, too long for an ace double. We, we, should, we should tell people what ace doubles were because people won't remember. But there were two novels within a single uh, bound paperback volume. Uh, so printed that, that you, you read your way through the first novel. And then you flipped the whole book the other way up. And on the other side of the book was with the cover and everything was was the other novel. So there were these back to back forms of, of novels, and they were called ace doubles. A lot of them were the short novels that we've been talking about here on the novellas. So you could have a novella of eighty odd, ninety pages, and have two of them together, either by the same author or different authors. And they ace produced a heck of a lot of stuff uh, from this. And as I've said a lot of times, David, I think that no, the novella length is quite an excellent length for good science fiction stuff. People don't go out of control when, they're, uh, when they've got that, that, that length. They have to sort of make everything concise and keep it all together. But anyway, so 1964 was an um, interesting, interesting year. It's got, uh, as I said, a couple of my favourite ever novels on the list, well, parts thereof, and also has what I consider to be one of the great um, science fiction stories with a rose for Ecclesiastes. So Interesting stuff. A couple of duds, but a couple of real good ones. A couple of real duds. Yeah, that's fine. That's true. Yeah, it's very true. So, yeah, interesting year. All right, Perry. Well, I think we we might uh, sort of wind up there. I think we've uh, we've been talking for more than long enough. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Yes. Oh, do we have plans for the next one? I think that we do have plans for the next one. We do have plans for the next one. Have a theme. Do we tell them what the theme is? Well, yeah, I think we should tell them what the theme is. Keep them. Yeah. So we're going to have a theme of mega structures in science fiction. These are the bigger than bigger than Ben Hur type creations of physical worlds or physical places to, to be to set a story. So we'll have, we'll have fun with that one. I think. Yep. We'll try and um, find some examples which are not necessarily all that well known, shall we say? Indeed. Okay, we'll see you in a fortnight. Yep, thanks, David. That'll be good. Thanks, thanks, Perk. See you then. See you then. Okay, bye.